0: Show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. is always a man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February 7, 2013, and this is episode 1066 of the Survival Podcast. And I have the good fortune to be bringing back on the air with me one of my great friends, Mr. Paul Wheaton. We're going to be talking about chickens, why you should have them, and why, in Mr. Wheaton's opinion, having a chicken coop for them, a conventional one anyway, sucks, and why you shouldn't do that. Uh, we'll even have a little bit of banter between Paul and I, as we always do, uh, debating some of his claims. And uh, maybe not debating his claims, m- debating his views. I believe his claims are valid, but maybe some of his views, well, maybe we don't share them. And that's okay, because there's more than one way to skin a cat, or in this case, more than one way to raise a chicken and get eggs out the other end of it. But uh, you judge for yourself, and I think you'll enjoy it. And I think Paul brings a lot of really great ideas, and I'm actually you know, really on board with the overall thing. I don't want you to take the way I'm saying this is the wrong way, but I think some of his contentions, maybe he's worried about the chicken's feelings a little more than I am, and I'm willing to put that chicken... Do a little bit harder work at certain things. You'll hear more about that in a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Veteran owned, veteran operated, and in the Sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, you will find Sawtooth Tactical, the place to get all the things you need for your tactical lifestyle. Check them out today, Sawtooth Tactical at sawtac.com. And remember, they do provide a discount to the Member Support Brigade. Just log into the MSB and go to the benefits section of the MSB and look for the discount code there before you order from SawTac. Next up today... Ready-Made Resources, there's not much more you can ask for from a company than for their name to be what they do, and then for them to do it, do it consistently, do it every time, and take care of their customers. That's what Ready-Made Resources does. They provide you all the resources you need ready-made, ready-to-go. Point-click buy on their website, shipped to you with lightning-fast service and great pricing. Check them out today, Ready-Made Resources. And I do mean all of the resources, tactical check, practical check. 12-volt stuff for your solar and wind, check. Wind and solar products, check. Long-term storage food, check. Stuff to process your own long-term storage food, check. Gardening stuff, check. You got the idea ready-made resources, all the resources you need for your prepping. Ready-made, ready to go. They are also running a huge Mountain House sale right now, 25 to 35% off all Mountain House. And they are also offering offering free shipping on case lots, and you can mix and match your case lots. So check them out today, again, ready-made resources uh, dot com. Uh, next up, want to remind you, check out our, you know, our sister sites, I guess is the way this has started to turn into its own little network. TSP gear for really cool gear. Uh, t-shirts, hats, the, the, the new, uh, um, French press mugs are awesome. Check those out. Get, get well, yourself one of the Every Citizen is a Sentinel patch. Hey, if you're coming to Liberty Forum, uh, track me down. Uh, I'm gonna bring not a bunch of the Every Citizen is a Sentinel patches, but quite a few, and I will be giving them out to people as they, uh, they show up and remind me that that's what I said. I would do. I'll just leave it at that. And If you're going to Liberty Forum, when you get your little bag they give you when you come in, make sure you look in there. There will be a goodie from Jack, and you'll have to show up to find out what it is. Uh, next, uh, make sure you check out TSP Mint for our new silver. Uh, we have some really cool silver stuff, and we are already working on the next design in the silver series for TSP Coins. Check out 13skills.com and develop your skill set in 2013, 13 new skills. In 2013, we do want to feature you guys. The email to use for the skills feature on 13 skills, skillgirl at 13skills 13 dot 13 com. 13skills dot com, not gotcom skillgirl at 13skills.com. Check out 13 Skills and if you are working on something over there, Dorothy wants to know about it. That's her email address so she can feature you on the 13 Skills blog. We'll start running those on Monday next week. Last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade. You do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And you help support this show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. But if you are military law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like a paramedic or something like that, EMTs, things like that, uh, I have a, a way you can save even more money. Just email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. And that means if you used to do this work, but don't do it anymore, you still qualify. I'll send you a discount code. You'll use that when you signed up. You'll save even more money. I do not disclose the discount but it is a deep discount and applies to reoccurring memberships do this before you join not after you join you guys in service uh, of any kind like this should be good at procedure and procedure is if you try to do this after you join i will tell you most likely you have to wait until renewal to do so occasionally i make an exception and do a manual refund but basically it's a real pain in the butt to do that way uh, cause it doesn't change your account. Alright, before we get into, uh, bringing Paul on, I wanna give a real quick update on MSB, because something happens time to time, uh, that I put out in the, the update I did this week, and I'm gonna be doing updates from now on, but I don't wanna put this in it all the time, so I wanna say it here, cause I reach more people here than in text on the blog. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you get discounts to about 36 vendors now. I'm looking to add some more in the next couple weeks. I've got some people I'm talking to that are real promising that may be high-quality people with new, different stuff that's lacking there right now. Okay, But if you join the Member Support Brigade, it's not like something magical happens to your fingertips, and then when you order from a company, they automatically know and apply the discount. Inside the members brigade, and after you join, you get an email. It says, welcome to the members brigade. Go log in here, and this is where all the stuff is. One of those places where all the stuff is is the benefits page. On that page is a whole crap load of of companies and you click on their name, and it jumps down to their description. It tells you who they are, what they do, and what the discount is, and how you get the discount. Most of the time, it's take this code and apply it at checkout. A few companies have things that are a little bit more complicated. You have to call your order in or what have you. But most of them is just use the code or send an email and get it done. Okay. But if you don't do that, because I get, this is the thing. I get an email, Jack, I just bought from so-and-so. I'm not sure if I got the Members Brigade price. Did you give them the discount code? No. Okay, then you didn't get the members brigade price. I'm not picking on you, I'm just saying like there's no way they it's not like there's a magic way that I've like interconnected all the first of all, it, it can't be done. Second, if it could, it would probably violate a lot of privacy concerns, right? That you would be somehow connected into this database that would give you different I mean, think about that. So go to the benefits section before you buy, before you buy anything in the preparedness industry, and see if there's somebody there you can do business with that'll give you a discount you can't get anywhere else. You paid for the membership, so um, I appreciate it, but I also want you to get your money back on it because I figure if you get your money back on it every year, then you'll stay my customer forever. That's that's the goal of the Members Brigade, uh, to give you more value than you pay for. All right, folks, and with that, it's my uh, great pleasure to welcome back once again after Far too damn long a time, my good buddy from the wilds of Montana, Mr. Permaculture himself, Paul Wheaton. Hey, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for uh, having me, Jack. Did, did you hear that I got a permaculture promotion? I don't know if you heard this.
0: Oh, I think you're one of your ego trips from Jeff Lawton saying something, Duke or something like that.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm on yet a bigger ego trip than even before. And, and you probably were certain it was not Possible that my ego could get any bigger?
0: Yeah, I talked to Jeff. He said I really have to stop saying a lot of stuff like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, he cannot take it back. I've it's recorded. too late.
0: <laughs> it's too late. It's been done. But hey, man, we got you on here to talk about chickens. Uh, And if you go, why what do you get Mr. Permaculture, Mr. Duke of Permaculture on to talk about chickens? A chicken's a pretty simple animal. You give it some chicken feed, you clean up its crap, you pick its eggs, you chop its head off, you eat it. You know, chickens are not that complicated. People have been living with chickens for 10,000 years. What, what, what's the difference for you with with chickens? So basically, your, your entire premise starts out with your notes to me, chicken coops Suck. First thing people will do when they buy chickens, they want a chicken coop. You say they suck. What's up with that?
1: Well, it's it's not exactly that all chicken coops suck. But I, I do get invited out to a lot of farms and a lot of gardens. And, and a lot of people have chickens um, you know, in an urban lot and stuff like that. And basically, they ask me the rather loaded question, isn't the way I'm treating my chickens great? And um, <clears throat> universally, my answer has been, up until I wrote my big, big article, my answer has been, No, and I will try to explain to you why. I can. I'm allowed about ten seconds before I'm pretty much ushered off the property because I did not, you know, bless their abuse of their chickens. And it's it's a lot of times. It's a long and complicated thing. With each different technique that people have for raising chickens, there was something in each one that that bothered me, and and then I would attempt to express all these different things. And I, and people wouldn't give me the time to express it. But when I wrote the article, I could write, I could just express all these crazy things on how I feel about chickens in one big gob. And now when people read the article, um, most of them are kind of like, oh, well, then that makes total sense. So it it needed to be one big gob, uh, was was the issue. And and the other thing is is that I had a lot of people that were really hating my guts for having written the article because I tended to bash whatever it was that they've been doing for years. Um, so, like, for example, with a coop. You, you mentioned coop. Why it is that I don't like coop? No, Most people start with a coop and run, and that's a very standard, normal place to start. That's, that's, most people can easily wrap their heads around it. Um, however, what they tend to do is they make uh, the area too small for the chickens, and next thing you know, there is no greenery growing in there. Chickens are standing on three-inch deep pile of poop. It's like, wow, why is the ground level inside of the chicken run three inches higher than the rest of the yard? Oh, that's right, because they've been pooping on it so long, it's just built up that much. Um, so uh, and then greenery is a big part of what chickens consume, and yet there's nothing in the chicken
0: run. That's because they've eaten it all, because you put them in one place for so long, there's nothing left. And then they covered up with you know, uncomposted manure what was left. So many people
1: set up chickens in such a way that they have no access to sunlight. I've, I've been to places where they had a $15,000 chicken coop, and they had all this pride over how awesome it was. And look at this, and look at that, and it's heated. And all these things, and look <laughs> at the lights and stuff like that. And it's like, dude, your chickens have no access to sun ever. They can't, I mean, even if, the, no matter what position the sun gets in, they don't get any. And so doesn't that bother you? And to, I mean, it bothers me. Um, so I, I've kind of, um, and as with many of the things, now when it comes to permaculture, and Jack, I have to say I've watched tons of your videos. I've listened to several of your podcasts about permaculture. And, and you know what? I want to hear, I want to verify that you know what you're talking about. You are one of the most important voices in permaculture today in my obnoxious opinion.
0: <laughs> so, well, I appreciate that, but don't go inflate my ego. That's so bad enough, too. Well,
1: with, with that, I want to say that when it comes to permaculture, there are many schools of thought under the great permaculture umbrella. Mm-hmm. And my position on many things is quite different from the permaculture norm. And, and so I think that this is one of those cases where my philosophies in raising chickens is quite different from that of, of many other people. Um, I think I wrote to you about eight months ago you had somebody on about chickens, and I emailed you and, raw, 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 you know, so now we're finally getting around to having this conversation. Well, <laughs> let me say my piece about the chickens. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, Coop and Run is a great place to start, but typically the greens end up disappearing. Yeah. Um, one <sighs> that seems to be very popular in permaculture circles is um the chicken tractor. I think that the contraption, the chicken tractor contraption is a wonderful thing. The chicken tractor, the philosophy is terrible. And, and this comes back to some stuff about um, like what Sepp Holzer says, but it is, it's like the corollary. What Sepp Holzer says about make sure that your animals have access to lots of poisonous plants. And, and so what he's trying to say is, is that when you provide your animals with a massive buffet of vegetation to eat, then, you know, like, like a good 60% of that is really good food. And then the poisonous plants, whether they're slightly toxic or very toxic, that tends to be the stuff that the animal will eat to self-medicate.
0: So it's like, oh. See, here's where I disagree with you, and I'm, I'm pretty familiar with your philosophy on, on, on paddock Shift. And I actually agree it's the best way to do things. But on a chicken tractor, this is my view. It has an awful lot to do with the frequency of movement, the size of the tractor, and the total number of birds. If you're trying to do 200 birds, that's one thing, right? If you're talking about a person that lives in suburbia, doesn't have a room to really break up paddocks, has a fairly large chicken tractor with four chickens in it and moves it every day, they're basically doing paddock shift, at least in my view.
1: Well, in a way, you can do something resembling paddocks. So, Like if you have a chicken tractor, typically three feet by seven feet is the size of a chicken tractor, the, the standard chicken tractor. And then you'll run three to six birds inside of that. Now, if you move that every half an hour, I, I think you're going to be totally acceptable. Um, um, well, not. I'm not going to say totally acceptable, but more acceptable. I, I object far less to that. But when you talk about the chicken tractor... The philosophy, as opposed to the contraption, the philosophy is is that you park the chicken tractor in one spot and you do not move the chickens until the chickens have consumed all of the greenery in there. The theory being is it's like if you, if you leave it in that one spot, the chickens effectively completely and thoroughly weed the entire area and leave behind a layer of poop. And then you move the check and tractor to the
0: next spot. So that would So, need- okay, let me ask you then. What do you think about the way Lawton does that very <laughs> thing for food forest establishment? And I don't think it's a day-to-day management practice, but it's like, okay, you chickens, for this period of time, you're going to do some freaking work for me. You're going to clear this ground, and then you can go back to being a chicken.
1: Um I- So I've talked to Jeff about that several times, and uh, over over the years, and um, uh, and I got to say that I I now have a podcast thanks to you. As it's actually your your fans made me make a podcast. So now I've got like two hundred podcasts out there, which I think are all just your people listening to it. I don't think there's anybody else listens to my podcast, but your people, but. the, uh, because of that podcast, now I've been interviewing Jeff on a, on a fairly regular basis. And, and at one point, I, um, offline, off podcast, I, I asked Jeff directly about this. And in some of his later stuff, he has been transitioning to something that's closer to what I advocate. But um, before, he would leave them in a spot and they would totally wipe it out, which is the chicken tractor philosophy. But now I think that he, um, once they've eliminated about 50 to 60% of the um, greenery in an area, he then moves them. So he moves them sooner than he used to, which is, which is closer to what I advocate. It's more of a paddock shift philosophy than a chicken tractor philosophy.
0: I guess my point is that like, I'm, I'm on board with what you're preaching, right? Preach on brother, that type of thing, okay. or preach on Duke. But I'm also saying that there's, there's a point in time that we take animals, right, and we put them to work to accomplish a task. And that doesn't necessarily have to be the way that animal lives day in and day out. But my view of a chicken is this it's a freaking chicken. I don't want it to be tortured, I don't want it a Tyson chicken house of horrors. But if I can clear a hundred square meters uh for food forest establishment with a chicken, he's gonna be okay at the end of the day, and he can go back to having his paddock shift after I put him to work.
1: I'm <clears throat> I'm gonna disagree. I mean I mean here okay let me finish the thing about the, the, sure. the chicken tractor thing, and it's like the idea is that you put the chicken there until all the greenery is gone. Now, when the chickens eat that first 60% of the greenery, it is delicious and awesome for them and totally non-toxic to them. The next 20% is going to be slightly toxic, and they've put it off because it's it's not as palatable to them. The last 20% is actually quite toxic, and the only thing that's left available to them to eat is rather toxic greenery and dried chicken food. And the dried chicken food. I'm, I'm not a fan of the dried chicken food either. I, I don't think that that's a really good thing for the chickens. But it's like, wow, this is all you got to pick from for food. When you get hungry, you can have dried chicken food, which is you know subgrade, not even allowed to be sold for human food. It's it's a it's a very poor quality food or greenery that contains nutrients and toxins. And and so then it's kind of like eventually they will eat. All of that greenery, so they are eating toxins they are knowingly eating toxins that do not taste good to them and and that part where they're knowingly eating those toxic plants is the part that really bothers me to me that's worse than when they're in your Tyson chicken house of horrors
0: so your your, your objection to tractoring isn't so much the very action itself but the the the, the bare earth um, what would they call that? What would what they call that when the uh, Russians were retreating? Scorched Earth Policy. Right? There you
1: go, the Scorched Earth <laughs> Policy. The
0: Scorched Earth Policy. I, I'm with you on that.
1: It's that last 40% of greenery okay. that bothers me. And, and plus, by the time you go to move them, by that time, they're standing around in their own crap. And okay. I'm not okay with that. And another thing is, is, that, is that a chicken is a forest animal. It's actually technically a jungle animal. And I think yep. I think that whenever we put an animal into a cage, we are embracing the obligation to give it a better life than what it would have had if it stayed in the wild. And I think that um, so part of it is is that we need to put it into an area where there is brush and trees, and and that this is their nature, um, and and to provide for them, to provide you know well for them, because otherwise they would be in a in a jungle, which you know I don't know about you, but mo- jungle in Montana is not very common.
0: Uh, yeah. Now let me let me challenge you again with that very plot. <laughs> so, right? Pioneers came to America and, and they went out and they lived in a house literally made out of buffalo shit. Right? <laughs> and and they busted their ass in that house and they lived in squalor and eventually they built a homestead so that they could tan down to their grandchildren and their great grandchildren a great big farm and a great big homestead. So is it what Jeff Lawton's doing is saying, You chicken, you're gonna bust your ass and you're you're gonna get by but your grandchildren are going to run around in a forest.
1: Well, uh, boy, that's that's uh, that's putting a lot of uh, brain cells into a chicken.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, a chicken doesn't need to understand that, right? That's the operator of the chicken. Well, there there yeah. is that. <laughs> but, uh,. Yes, let me
1: sit down, with your chicken. Let me talk about your grandchildren and how good I'm going to care for them. If only you do a little
0: something. <laughs> well, but just now, if you look at if you look at the establishment on on uh, on Jeff's farm, that's exactly what you have: ducks and chickens running through a forest that was established with the help of basically their great great grandparents.
1: Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And at the same time, I didn't like the way that he was treating their grandparents. I mean, I can. <laughs> I can, I can be opposed. I can object Jeff Lawton. So clearly, if it's Jeff Lawton versus me, I must be wrong. He's not Prince. I am merely no. the Duke. I think I'm going to be hanged for saying this. <laughs> 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 Off with his head!
0: No, no, I'm just, I'm just challenging you because I know you enjoy that.
1: Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm still uncomfortable with that. I mean, the other thing is, I think that, you know, when you're going to go and you're going to establish a system, I think the first thing to do in 2013, when you get to a piece of land is, is that you're going to change the texture of the landscape. You're going to add texture to the landscape. And in which case, um, I would say that you're normally going to be doing that with a traco, a little bit bigger than a chicken. And okay. and then the thing is, is that yes, you're going to bring chickens in to pulse the system, um, because that helps the system in a lot of ways. But but I don't want to do it in a tiny pen. I want to do it in these larger paddocks, where they they there's brush and trees and forbs and and all kinds of of edibles in there, as well as medicinals, all kinds of stuff in there for the chicken to eat and for me to eat. And by pulsing them through the system, I get. I get eggs, I get meat from the chicken, and I also get a lusher environment for me by just, you know, a little bit of strategy. Um, And so at no point in time, I think you get far, far more by using a paddock shift system than if you were to use... Now, the pins that he was using, I mean, he was using them in a chicken tractor style, and I believe he was even calling them a chicken tractor.
0: Yeah, but he was really doing a lot closer to paddock shift. He was using electro fencing... And he had these birds on, I, I think if I remember right in his latest video, 100 square meters. That's a, that's, a, that's a fairly large tract of land. Maybe it was 50 meters square. It was something in that. But it was, um, I mean, when I looked at it, it looked about the same size as did uh, Ben Cook up in Vermont at his schools moving his birds around. And he's, you'd like what he's doing. He's doing what you recommend. Those birds are moving every day and they're, you know, 40 birds on a, on a fairly large paddock. Right,
1: and I think I think that um, I mean basically I think the rule of thumb for paddock shift systems, and this applies for chickens as well as for cattle and for hogs and for whatever kind of animal you might be raising, and um, in, in this kind of a thing, especially ruminants, <clears throat> and that's going to be that when the animals have consumed thirty percent of the growies, they move to the next paddock, and I and I think that when you do that. Then, then your system just just overproduces. It overthrives. It's, it's just massive and awesome and beautiful.
0: Okay, I have a great question for you because this is not the first time we've discussed this on our show. We've discussed this exact thing one of the first episodes you ever did with me. Okay, and a question came in you never answered. Okay, and. I have an answer for this question, but I bet you're going to have a better one. (laughs) You call call it the ice cream, right? The chickens eat the ice cream first, and they get a little bit of the non-ice cream when you hold them to the 30% rule. True. Okay? True. Now, what the question was is, okay, so I've got this this 70% that's not ice cream. If I bring those chickens through multiple times in a rotation over a couple seasons, how do I not end up with an imbalance – of an abundance of the things that aren't ice cream, in other words, the chickens are selectively eating all the good stuff, doesn't that disadvantage it to the advantage of the non-ice cream?
1: Okay, so first of all, let's let's correct one little thing. And, and so then you said 70% is yep. not ice cream.
0: Yeah, so that's not true. I, want, I said you'll have a better answer, but I have an answer to it. <laughs> I,
1: so I, I want to correct that. And so it's it's like it's, it's still going to – I mean, basically – when you go in, into the paddock, 60% of what is there, 60% is generally ice cream. So, so basically, the chickens ate half the ice cream and then they left half behind. And then 40% of what was there is like, you know, not ice cream. And so, and, and, and you're right, they, they kind of did nibble at that a little bit. Now, <clears throat> there are about 40 different factors that are known that make it so that when you do paddock shift and you do that pulsing, that you, your, your growies grow five times more per season than if you didn't do the pulsing. And, and so like, um, and so when I'm giving my presentation, when I go travel around and present and stuff like that and people ask about this and I say, okay, let, let's consider cattle for a moment. Cause cattle is kind of where it started with Alan Savory's work and then later it moves into Salatin's work and, and stuff like that. But when you bring in, um, cattle, there's a there's a variety of different things that happen with mob grazing <clears throat> while they're there that are going to cause this. But just as one example is consider for a moment that a cow wanders over to the creek and chug-a-lug, chug-a-lug, fills up on 20 gallons of water and then wanders out in the middle of the pasture where things are dry and not getting a lot of water and returns the water.
0: With nitrogen at it.
1: yes. Yes. And then every once in a while drops a cow pie in a spot and that cow pie is loaded with seeds of the things that that cow thought was ice cream.
0: All right. And, Absolutely.
1: And so Absolutely. and that's extra fertile. That's extra good. So, I mean, are you am I painting enough of a picture yet? Yep. We're just getting warmed up. I mean, there's like 40 things. There are some excellent videos out there. That, that really go into a lot of detail of a lot more of the 40 thang. I mean, I would add to
0: it, you've got a disturbed soil factor. So now I've disturbed the soil, but what's being reseeded is the ice cream.
1: This The ice cream is being reseeded. Now, not so much through the chickens, because the chickens have a crop. Correct. And, and so there are a lot of those seeds that are busting them open, but some of the seeds still pass right on through.
0: And some of them don't get eaten. So when a chicken goes in, it starts tearing up clover, and there's a dry clover blossom if you move them at the frequency you're suggesting instead of doing scorched earth, some of those seeds from that blossom are not going to get found. They're pretty, if you look at clover seeds, pretty small stuff. They're not going to get every single one of them.
1: Well, and then the other thing is is that chickens tend to care for a lot of um, uh, uh, grass seeds, which we call grains. And, yep. and so grains, because they have a crop, they're, they're designed to eat grain. They're, they're big on even though even though those kinds of things don't even make up half of their diet. But they are, Correct. but th- and a, a lot of those uh, different kinds of grasses are going to um, also reproduce rhizomatously.
0: And Where are you on the concept, especially during establishment? Of I've moved my chickens through. I'm in my especially my establishment developmental phases. I'm moving them maybe faster than you ever would because I've got to because my land sucks right now okay. and I'm trying to get it established. Seeding over them after they leave with a seed mix.
1: So um, I, I like what Salatin has to say about that, and that Salatin has never put seed on his land.
0: And so yeah, he had clover on his land when he started, though, right? I mean, it's it just and a lot of other things. I
1: mean, you know, and part of it is is that there's other birds in the world, and then they fly out and they eat sure. stuff, and then they come out and they deposit seeds all over your land without your asking. And you could stand out in your yard and shake your fist at them. Damn, birds, put <laughs> on my land. On, on the other hand, you know, they're, they're bringing in new species in a variety of different ways and, and, and adding, and then whatever it is that's going to do really well. I mean, if you think about it, some of the things that most people are like the most freaked out about is weeds make some of the best chicken feed.
0: I mean, Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I talk about seed, I seed things like <laughs> chicory. I don't know how well that does up in Montana, but I seed chicory. I seed plantain. Uh, I seed these things because, well, right now where I am, I'm sad because there isn't any. Uh, and where I, where I just came from, it was a rocky hellhole. And when I left, it was full of clover and vetch and all. And that was all stuff that we brought in.
1: And then as you, as you do a paddock shift system with, with whatever kind of animal you use, All those things will just thrive and become massive. I mean, it's, and, and when I do the presentation, I always do this. I say, okay, I'm making the claim. It'll grow five times more than if you just left it alone. So now I want to find people in the audience who have done this and can confirm what I'm saying. And now, of course, it's hard for me to do it right now. Can you confirm what I'm saying, Jack? I don't know.
0: (laughs) I I can confirm it, but I can't confirm it with using chickens to do it. I can confirm it with using basically me being the chicken because I didn't want chickens where I was. I had – if you wanted me to do paddock shift, I would have had maybe two paddocks, right? So – I was trying to actually establish it to support a flock of maybe four birds yeah. um, on a very small piece of property in the middle of the Ozarks. And, well, now I've got three acres of, you know, soon-to-be lushness. And, and I will be confirming it for you because this is exactly what I'm going to do. Even though I was challenging you, oh, no. I'm only doing it as a professional courtesy so you can make your case. Like I said, I'm on board with the philosophy.
1: Challenge me all you want, man. I can take it. I can take it. I've, I've only been challenged like 10,000 times in the past. I'm pretty used to it.
0: But now let me correct something
1: you just said. You said two paddocks, and I'm going to have to, I have to say you can't do this with two paddocks.
0: Exactly. Well, no, that's why I wouldn't do it. That's what I'm saying. I didn't have enough space. Now, um, this is done in an
1: urban lot a lot. A lot of people are doing this in urban lots.
0: Yeah. And they've got like three
1: chickens, and then they divide their property into four or five chunks. And sometimes what they'll do is is the fifth chunk, chunk number five, will be particularly small. And we'll refer to this as a sacrifice area. Okay. And and so then what you'll do is that it's like, okay, you go into an area. Because every area, it's like you let them eat 30%, and then they have to move on. And then they can't come back to that area for at least 28 days. So... If it's if, so you go to the so it's possible that your yard in so, is so small,
0: world you have 28 pad- paddocks.
1: It's like maybe you can only be 4 days in each paddock. 4 days here, 4 days here, right. 4
0: days here, 4 days here. So and then, days then you're back the at the
1: sacrifice area and you stay in the sacrifice area until the first paddock is now um available again. So basically you've got some of the problems of coop and run because what and basically the the sacrifice area is going to be basically your run and and then they just stay there, and then it's going to end up being effectively almost nearly wiped out. But then the four remaining paddocks that are good paddocks that are being managed properly, that they're going to thrive. They're going to be amazing and awesome and spectacular.
0: And if I could add to that, you're, in, when they're in your sacrifice area, your rotational period is plenty of time to grow some fodder for your chickens just for fodder feed when they're stuck there.
1: True. And in fact, a lot of the fodder feed for chickens is the exact same stuff that you and I eat.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So
1: what I do is I tell people, you know, what you're going to do is your whole property is going to end up being one big garden for you. And your chickens are going to have access to it. And because you manage it correctly, you'll actually get more food than if you didn't have chickens at all. But then what you'll do is like, okay, tomorrow the chickens are going into this area. So today I'm going to go into this area and harvest everything out of it that I want. And then tomorrow the chickens move in and then, then they're going to eat 30% of what's there and then move to the next paddock, et cetera.
0: So let's let's look at it this way then, giving people the nuts and bolts mechanics, size, movement frequencies, et cetera. Um, an average homesteader is, is not somebody that's pasturing 100 birds a year as broilers. The average homesteader maybe is doing 40 or 50 of those, and we'll leave that out for now, for, for self-use, for a bird a week or something like that. But most homesteaders, what they're doing is they're raising an egg flock, right? They've got four or five hens. That's about the average size I've seen, somewhere between three, three to six, right? So that's the person. How big does a paddock need, need to be? What's your frequency of movement? And what is the size of the paddock in a scenario where it's not tiny suburban lot, where you have a little bit of land to work with, optimum.
1: Okay, the answer to that question will probably take up about eight books. To be accurate, but let me. Hey, give us the gonna the elevator some, version. I'm going to try and take some shortcuts here. I mean, um, so I mean, it's going to depend on how much you're growing and then what your land is like, how well you're taking care of it, what your soil is like, what kind of birds are we talking about, um, uh, things of that nature. Uh, but I would, I would have to say that on a lot of homesteads, you're going to have something that's going to be um, um, uh, for that size. You, you might have a paddock that's going to be maybe um, hundred feet by fifty feet would be a, a paddock. And then they okay. would be in there for like a week to ten days. If you've only got okay. like four birds or six birds, and I think that would be plenty of space. And these are about
0: five hundred square feet, roughly. Okay. I don't know. I'm I'm making this
1: up. I'm just taking a, <laughs> it's, because usually people are going to ask me. It's like they're going to say more like twenty five birds, or they're going to say fifty birds, you know, or, or something like that. But you're right. I'll, I mean, a lot of homesteads. And the other thing is, of course, is that you usually are harvesting a lot of your chickens um, come fall. And then, of course, you're going to have a whole bunch of chicks born uh, or not hatched, uh, uh, you know, in the spring, early spring. So, um, and then a lot of your um, eating happens during the warmer season. And then your flock is reduced in size over the winter. And so then it's kind of like, okay, well, what are they eating over the winter? And, and that's another thing too is when I was raising chickens, <clears throat> and and I raised thousands, then I was selling meat for a hair more than what I was paying for feed. And I was selling eggs for a hair more than what I was paying for feed. And that's how I ended up going into this area of where I'm like, well, how do I improve upon that? Can I grow my own feed? So I started growing my own feed. And then it's like, ah, this is a lot of work. I don't, I don't like work. I'm lazy. And so, it's, so then I started like, how can I grow things that the animals can self-harvest? And then, Mm. and then it was like somewhere along the line at the time I was doing that, I started to learn more and more about permaculture. This is a long time ago. And, and it's like, ah, and so now, of course, like when you visit with Sepp Holzer, then, then Sepp himself says that when he raises chickens, he doesn't feed them at all. He doesn't, he buys no chicken feed. Although when you ask his son, Yosef, He's like, oh, we set some food aside for the chickens because there's 12 yeah. days of the year it's just frozen solid out there.
0: Yeah, and we yeah. We take pity
1: on the chickens and
0: we throw up. I mean, I've <laughs> seen all kinds of variations. There's a, there's a, a group, uh, a, a farm called JB Farms in Arkansas that I bought a lot of chickens from while I was living up there. That were doing broilers. They are doing the Paul and paddock shift method. They just don't know that they're they're basing it on what they've seen from Salatin, but it's 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 more you than even Salatin because it's what's worked for them. But they are feeding supplemental feed at about a 30% ratio. And I said, how did you arrive at that? And he said, I want them taking 70% of food from the land. I give them 30% of what they need for their growth rate. And they got the other 70% from somewhere.
1: Well, now, I I, I did Salatin's techniques for years. And, and I mean, Salatin is an amazing and brilliant man. And he is fantastic. And I once shook his hand, and it was awesome. And I'm just so glad that Salatin's out there doing stuff. And at the same time, it was with Southon's techniques where it was like, I am just not coming out financially ahead and that's not okay. And so yeah. I, I, so I came up with my system and then, and then eventually I wrote my article. And once the article went up, I just got tons of people writing to me talking about how they came to the same conclusions. And they invented the same thing. So this guy that you're talking about, yeah, he doesn't know about me and he's doing it. That's totally cool because I think that when you start traveling down this path far enough, the solutions start to become rather obvious.
0: This I, I, got an is interesting tip to- I I got an interesting tidbit for you, and I think you'll like this. I asked him, I said, were you always doing 30%? He said, I tried 30% two and a half years ago, and, and I had very skinny, very unhealthy, very unhappy, slow-growing chickens. So I had to do 50% my first year because the lamb that I got blew ass, but now I'm down to 30%, and I'll take it down to whatever works. Right, I, in, so much of it is, and I think that the thing to do
1: is that you should offer unlimited chicken feed, and then if you're doing oh. a good job, they won't eat any of it.
0: I mean, oh, that's interesting think- because, yeah, I mean, you give a chicken a choice between really yummy clover and chicory and and planting and alfalfa and and Purina chicken feed, you know what they're going to go after first.
1: Absolutely, and so as part of my article, I talk about the whole thing about um, uh, strawberries. So, like when I when I visited one farm, they were telling me, "Oh, this one time the chickens got out and they ate like damn near all the strawberries, almost wiped out our whole strawberry crop." Hmm. And my response to that was, "Is like, well, if the chickens are needing to eat strawberries, clearly there's something that they aren't getting in your standard feed that you're giving them. You know, there's there's something because chickens, like most animals that we raise." They're, what they eat is based dominantly on instinct, almost entirely, nearly 100%, a little bit of learning, but mostly about instinct. And so it's, it's like if, if they're not getting enough of some kind of nutrient, they will find it somewhere else. When, I mean, when you let them out and they go and wipe out the strawberries, clearly you are shorting them somehow in their nutritional needs.
0: So, so let me give you some objections people will have to your method. Okay. No coup. Well, chickens are going to freeze to death in winter, especially where you're at in Montana.
1: Um, we, we, for the, for the paddock shift system for chickens, I strongly recommend a portable coop, something that's small enough that you can drag around. Now, if you're talking about a larger system where you're going to have 50, 100, 500, 1,000 birds in one paddock, well, then you might need something that you can drag around with a four-wheeler or a tractor or something like that.
0: So you're not saying no coop, you're saying no I'm saying conventional <laughs> stationary in place. Run out each side chicken coop. Right now, a so lot of place people for them to go inside. That's okay.
1: A lot of people that start down this, they they go for what's called a wagon wheel. I mean, they just think it up. Like, oh, I thought of this system. I'll have a central coop, and I'll have the paddock surrounding the central coop, and I'll yep. just open the fence each way. That's you know, so it's like you're not the first person to think of that. This is nope. this is referred to as the wagon wheel. And, and so then, uh, this was actually documented in Alan Savory's book from, from what, 30 years ago or something like that. And, and, and basically what happens is, is that you start to get, um, all the stuff around the chicken coop ends up being just a dirt pile and, and it's very unhealthy. I mean, diseases start to build up and stuff like that. When you're using the portable coop, then what you do is you get to a new paddock and you kind of look around and decide which piece of land inside this paddock is the lousiest piece of land. And then you park the coop there. And um, next year, that will be the awesomest piece of land. Because, the you know, as the chickens roost in the coop and hang around the coop and, and stuff like that, they poop a lot there. And so then that's going to improve that area, add a whole lot of organic matter to that little spot.
0: Well, and that way you're not overbuilding the organic matter because you had a recent video that somebody pointed out. It was pretty cool. A chicken coop and a lady was using deep litter and using Christmas tree browse and that kept the steak down. There's still a lot of chicken stuff there, right? But when well, yeah. you're doing these mobile coops, you would, of course, the bottom would be the earth. Right. It would be open bottom. Right.
1: And then instead of instead of cleaning it, because that's another thing, too, is I'm so lazy. Plus, the other thing is, is, like, every time I used to go in long, long ago when I had Coop and Run, it's like the idea of cleaning the chicken coop was, like, one of the most horrendous jobs in the world. Plus, there's this whole thing of, like, the chickens are in there, and it stinks, and and it's like, I I am not comfortable with the idea of my chickens being in this thing, and it smells so terrible.
0: Yeah, would you want to breathe that into your lungs every day? And if the the answer is no, then why do you want the thing that craps out an egg breathing in it every day? Because clearly whatever goes into them goes into their egg.
1: Yes, absolutely, and plus it's just like um, I can't help but think that when it smells that bad and I'm forcing the chickens to say, you, you don't have any other place to sleep
0: but in there with the yeah. poop, then I yeah. kind of
1: feel like I'm a horrible person.
0: And You know, uh, let me what, what Ben Cook does with his, not his egg birds, his meat birds, buys them in the spring, raises them to the other summer, kill them, th- those kind of birds, yeah, right? right? They don't even get a coop. I was shocked. He moves chickens and sheep in a, in a paddock shift using electro fence together. So the chickens are climbing up on the sheep and eating the bugs off the sheep to keep down the, the flies and all. Uh-huh. And he moves them every, just about every day he's moving them. And at night, and it gets pretty cold even in the summer in Vermont. I mean, you'll see nights in the 40s in August. You go out and look at them, and the sheep are like in a circle all kind of laying together. And in between the sheep... There's all these kosher king, uh, cockerels just huddled up together and they just sleep there. And when we, we had a guy come out to do a workshop at his PDC, and we actually slaughtered chickens, slit their necks, hung them in the cones, plucked them the whole nine yards. This guy does it every day of his life. Mm-hmm. When he was going to, 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 to remove the heads, he's like, this is the, these are the healthiest, strongest birds I've ever seen in my life. He was like showing the heart and the liver goes, they never look like this. They, you know, you know, especially with the hybrids and all. He's like, they never, I, He said, I've never seen birds this healthy in my life. And those birds had never seen the inside of anything except when they were chicks and basically being getting ready to go out.
1: Right. Now, now of course, if, if in the jungle, then they go up yeah. in the trees, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and that's kind of how they're designed it to be. But that's, that's also a warmer climate. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that if we're talking about like, it's going to be cold here, rain, I mean, first of all, if you're out in an open pasture and there's no trees or brush and you're putting your chickens out there and it's, um, going to rain, then I'm not okay with that. I just want to be, yeah. I want to make, I'm uncomfortable with that. Okay. Um, um, but it's, so it's like you should be providing some sort of, of shelter, because you're not providing trees and shrubs and the the natural habitat that they would have someplace else. Then if you're going to try and overwinter them, well, let's keep in mind again that the jungle doesn't exactly have winter. And so we're taking on this extra leap (laughs) of things that that we have the responsibility to do. I I feel like we should embrace this responsibility and try and give a better life to these animals. Um,
0: So. And that differs by my climate. Marjorie down in – now, she's down south of Austin. They don't get much of a winter down there. You're at, like, zone nine-ish right there. Her chickens decided they like this one group of pine trees. Yeah. So once they decided that's what they liked, she girdled those trees with metal so coons can't get off them. All right. And they take care of themselves. That's, that's, that's her whole thing is they just – now, she's doing free range, but she's got, like, 130 acres – and like a dozen birds.
1: So okay. I think that works there. All right. Now in my article, I talk about
0: truly free range and, yeah. and why I don't like that. I mean, because they were reshaping your trees and shitting on your porch. <laughs> they were
1: crapping on my
0: porch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and they crapped on my workbench. They they perfectly good hay. They would poop all over it. And, and it's like, plus on top of that, since you don't have the paddock shift thing, you don't get that big abundance of growth. So it, so. Yeah, I, I truly free-range, been there, done that. I got scratches all over my car still
0: because it's like, – I laughed at the picture where they were sitting in your fruit trees, and it was like this big – I don't know what kind of tree it was. It looked like a peach to me, but I'm sure it wasn't up there. And it was just drooped over like halfway, and this big-ass hen was just sitting in it.
1: Yeah, they were totally reshaping all of my trees. Yeah, and it's like, no, no, we don't like the central leader idea. Here's what we like. How the hell did they do this? Somehow they grabbed the tip of the tree, they bent it over and sat on it, and then more of them would sit on That looks like a great place to sit. Can I sit there too? And then the tree just was naturally twisted after that, just forever. Why does everybody want to sit on that one tree and reshape it? Would you guys stop doing that?
0: So, so, you, you, we, we, we've, we've pointed out some areas where you disagree with some of the stuff with food forest establishment. But I, I imagine you do think that chickens can be used as part of a system to establish a food forest. How, how do you see that working out?
1: Well, when you first, like, so you've gone in, you've reshaped the land, you've planted a bunch of new stuff. I would keep the chickens out for probably a couple of months until things start to get at least a little bit established. Um, and, and then start <laughs> pulsing them in. Um, uh, but when when there w- we saw – I mean, you're talking about Jeff Lawton's videos. And so in some of his older videos, then he's got something where he's got a Salatin-like pen, but he's using it like a tractor. He's just leaving it there for like a month until everything's wiped out underneath. <clears throat> and now he doesn't do that anymore, I don't think. Um, uh but then and then in a later video he's got something where it's more of a paddock shift system. He's got the electronet fencing and then he's got a portable coop that he's moving around and and then but he still like has them like eat down like eighty percent of it before he moves. So it's an improvement, but I'm I'm still I still officially give Jeff Lawton, the crown prince of permaculture, the stink eye, um, because I would do it a different way. Um and, and so I would I would say thirty percent, now you move. Now, and plus, in these areas where he's got the video, they're flat. They're sloped, but flat. And, and it's kind of like, oh, I would want to add so much more texture here. And granted, he did have them kind of wipe out what was already there, and then he came in later and he planted a bunch of stuff and turned it into a food forest. Um, and I would just say, no, I would want to add the texture first and then start planting in the food forest stuff. Kind of like what he did when he did a swale, and one in his food forest video, he does a he does whale. So that's, I think that's much closer. And so did chickens play a role in like wiping out the, the existing vegetation so that he could come in and plant stuff? No, he, not in that one. Not in his examples with the chickens that he's doing that. And and it's kind of like, I'd, I would rather do it a different way. That's all. I got you. Did I uh, answer your question, or did I somehow manage to dodge your question?
0: No, you didn't really dodge it. You, you answered it. That's not the way you would do it. That's the, the, the basic answer. My, my view is that when we look at different landscapes, different situations, different timelines, different budgets, uh, different accessibility to uh, heavy equipment, we have different problems and different solutions to those problems based on the variables. And I think what he was demonstrating with the, the chicken mobbing, was that if someone with uh, with very low budget, no access to heavy equipment, uh, could replicate at least some level of the success that he would accomplish with a 30-ton excavator and uh, in a different way, in a different manner, and maybe even in a different climate. There are climates where you don't really need to worry that much about the effect of swale irrigation because, you know, uh, you look at some parts of the northeastern United States, if you don't put a rain fly on your tent in the summer – Uh, you will wake up soaking wet just from the dew drop. And, And there's different climates and different environments where these things play out. And I know you want to save all the chickens and give them all a perfect life. And some people are on board with that and some people aren't. I'm in the middle. I want the chicken to have the best life he can. But in the end... It is a chicken. <laughs> Get in my belly. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Now, I got a, I got a totally off-the-wall question that I bet you could have never foreseen, even though it applies directly to what we've been talking about. <laughs> How would you feel about doing this process, slightly modified, with something like ducks? Hmm. because they behave differently. They don't scratch the way chickens do. They're, they're much softer on the land. But, see, my view of a duck is I've known lots of chickens in my life, and I've known ducks in my life, and I've actually been better friends with ducks than chickens. I just feel like they have a better personality.
1: So I'm trying to think of, like, because, of course, for me, now I've never raised ducks, I gotta, so I've got to confess okay. my, my duck confession. Uh, and as and I've never raised ducks, <clears throat> well, I've never raised um, domesticated ducks, I've raised a lot of ducks that have come by to my pond, <laughs> and uh, hi ducks, ducks, how the hell are you? But uh, yeah. they they didn't get into my belly. <laughs> um, uh, so it's like uh, uh, I, I I think about the ponds. I think about yeah. like uh, okay, so now if you're gonna do paddock shift with ducks, then how do you do that? I mean, do you, do you take how do you can can you take a pond and divide it into multiple chunks? I'm not seeing how. And so then I'm thinking, like, okay, now you've got, like, multiple ponds. And, or tanks. Right. And, and you know, when it comes to tanks, I'm not ai so you're asking me what I would do, how I would feel, and I'm going to tell you I'm not a big fan of the tanks. And, and I get a lot of people who write to me, like, oh, come and visit this farm and come and visit this place because they're doing aquaponics. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I've I've only been asked like about a hundred and fifty times to come see somebody's aquaponics stuff, and it's like I'm not a fan of aquaponics. I'm a fan of aquaculture. And so,
0: so let me no, let me bounce this idea off you because I know you don't like aquaponics. It's a lot of freaking work, and we don't like you and I are in agreement. That I want the nature to do more of the work than I do or I'm doing it wrong, right? I, I want to
1: work with nature instead of not against, against nature, it, yeah.
0: right? And, and, I, and I, not only do I want to work w- with nature, I want to work with nature in a way where I'm the lazy ass and she's the hard working person, right? So in my instance, I got three acres. I've got an 800 square foot steel roof on one outbuilding. I've got a 1200 square foot steel roof on another building. I've got about I'd say close to 1,600 square feet of roof on my house, and I've got another uh, building with about 200 square feet of roof. I get about 30 inches of rain a year. That's a lot of roof catchment that can be diverted into 500, 800-gallon tanks that can be elevated for irrigation and diverted just about anywhere on the property because the roof line's higher than every other piece of the property. (laughs) All right? So there could be these remote tanks, and the pipes (laughs) can even run underground because as long as the end of the pipe is lower than the head on the pipe, the water comes out the other end. And there could be these tanks all over the place with little drains in the bottom that have this fertigated duck water, and these ducks could just go to each little place whenever I wanted them to, and have their own little eight-foot... Because they don't need a giant pond. And my initial intention was to put in some really big ponds here. And then I got a re-lesson. A re-lesson means learning again of geology in the state of Texas. The state of Texas used to be under this thing called an ocean about 500 million years ago. (laughs) And in parts of Texas... You can dig a hole anywhere and wait, and it'll t- turn into a pond and fill up all by itself. You, you can't do it wrong. It's red clay or it's black clay. You dig a hole. As long as there's catchment, it becomes a pond. In other parts, you have that nice clay layer, and about a foot down, you have this white, concrete-looking rock made up of shells and nautiluses and things like that. Guess what's under my house? Uh, ocean debris. Correct. So I've got this ocean reef ridgeline underneath my head. It's what it is. I mean, it's it's like I had no belief that it would be this far north. I used to do underground construction uh, 80 miles south of here, and it was all over the place. And as soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh, damn it. So I have a limitation. I can maybe do a little bit of impounding. I can maybe squeeze in a 10th acre pond on the lowest part of the land with the right impoundment. But I could have these little tanks running off of roof water all over the freaking place, and then using a the landscape profile, I could push that water anywhere I want, and moving through that system could be these happy little quacking ducks.
1: Okay, I've got two important responses, and for the first okay. response, I have to gloat to your pod people for a moment and say, okay. when you read the Edo book, The, uh, the, then, then, whereas everybody else learned about the Edo book by listening to your podcast, I got a personal email from Jack saying, Paul, you gotta look at this book right away. And it was like out of print, (laughs) and I'm like, find a copy, right? Like, you gotta read this. So, I, in fact, yesterday, I just finished doing like a 10 podcast review of the book. And I haven't put any of it up yet and we're going to c- put it together and I'll be putting it up uh, probably for sale for like $3 or something to hear all 10 podcasts. But we went into a huge detail of every little, like, like we, we would read 15 pages and then review. But anyway, so that's that. But the thing is, is that. Is that when you're telling me this, like, I'm gonna put up the pipes off of the roof and I'm gonna catch it, the, the, the container, and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. And it's like, okay, what would the guys in the Edo period do? Probably not that. And, and so, um they would probably have something simpler. And, and, uh, so, okay, so, so that's one. I'm gonna just take that and, and set that Edo thing aside for a moment. The next thing is, is that, Every time somebody brings up water catchment to me, and it's like, I'm gonna have the barrels, and I'm gonna have a big tank, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have the gutters coming over here, and I'm gonna clean the water before it goes into the, and then I'm gonna be, you know, whenever anybody says any of that to me, my first thought is, is it's like, that's a wonderful thing to do after you get all your hugel culture stuff done. So you don't, cause the moment you said, cause you said this word a moment ago, you said the irrigation, and I kinda think to myself, irrigation to me it sounds like work and and so whereas if you got the culture set up and you got your texture to your landscape and all of that kind of things it's like now i can be lazy it doesn't need to be watered
0: yeah but see all of that can be automated and ducks like water
1: well yeah okay so you got to, but see that's the I, so now i'm back to the pond so you were talking about like what your subsoil is like and so you're thinking your subsoil
0: is not gonna hold water no, I'm thinking my subsoil, if I had dynamite, I could blow out a hole in the ground, and it would hold water perfectly. I mean, literally, my neighbor behind me said when they put his pool in back in 1970, uh, the pool people were like, we got this equipment, we'll take care of it. No problem, it'll be fine. So they were out there for like a week, and then they finally gave up, and they brought in dynamite. And they blasted a serious, serious to God. They brought in dynamite. They blasted out the hole for this guy's in ground pool. And he said, honestly, they could have done the gunite in the first foot. <laughs> and, and it would have held it, it looked like a carved rock pool. So then, so that's my subsoil is it, it's not rocky. Right? Because if it's rocky, we can, we can do the the holster thing. We can excavate the shit out of it. We can shake the bucket. We can separate the material. We can pull out the rock and we can seal it up. We, the problem here passed about a foot, foot and a half. And I I need to get a probe and get some depth readings throughout the whole property because I might find a pocket where I can get away with it. But the prevailing wisdom is that a foot or less in most areas, that's what I'm going to hit.
1: So, so the, the, the thing that is your primary concern is, is that you're basically sitting on one large rock. And, Correct. But now, I would imagine that, cause like I'm teaching a workshop down in California here soon, and I, I've already gotten the prelim reports back that it's gonna be like one enormous rock. They want a pond, we're gonna have one enormous rock, but it's cracked <laughs> bedrock. So yeah. it's kinda like,
0: it's going to seep through there. Even yeah. if you did
1: the dynamite thing, it's like it's not going to hold the water, no. and and so no. now we're getting a little worried about what we're going to encounter when we're there. But but it sounds like you've got the same problem. But is it is is it hold water or does it let water go through? So
0: it'll hold water. Here's the problem. So is digging the you hole. Only, if you could only get a foot down, you're going to, to You could only get a foot of depth. It's like gonna, you can use your elevation. You can do your extrication, build it back, and if you have a little bit of a seepage problem, you can bring in a couple tons of bentonite, which in some places is really expensive, but in Texas it's like you know, getting bentonite's like getting oxygen. It's 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 so prevalent, so available. And and frankly there's so much um drilling and boring both horizontal and vertical going down around here that there's, a, there's an excessive, abundant supply of affordable bed night. So okay. it's not an excessive expense. But a simpler solution, Giving I might be able to pull off one pond for the ducks, is these remote tanks. And then if those remote tanks are strategically located, so each one's within a paddock, and each one of those tanks is not really an irrigation source. It's the ducks. If, when ducks swim in water, you know what they do. They crap. They prefer to crap it. I don't know why, but if they could be, and they're not always in the water. You see ducks spend a lot of time on shore. But they could be on shore for four hours, no crap, in the water. So now I've got all this great fertility. Well,
1: geese are like the opposite, but yeah.
0: Duck- yeah, okay, so, but now if I've got, and I, I will, I can put swales in, not the size I would have originally done, a little bit scaled down, but I can put swales in, I can push water anywhere I want to. I can drop that fertility into the landscape.
1: Is your land sloped at all?
0: It is sloped. It's a weird way that it's sloped because, like, it's not a – like, the house is higher than everything else by design probably. So it slopes kind of in this wonky way where, like, the northwest corner is the highest corner, and then the next highest spot on the land is, like, the northeast corner, and then the next highest one is, like, the the, the southeast corner – and then, like, the lowest point is, like, the southwest corner, where the northwest corner is the, the the highest point. So it's got this weird shape to it. But I can utilize that to move stuff. But we're talking yeah. about very, very moderate slope. Oh, oh, okay. So not about- it's not It's not a steep. It, no, it's not steep at all. It looks – 80% of it looks flat, even though it's not. I was playing with an A-frame level yesterday, and I think I'm going to buy one of those – Badass um, laser level. laser levels, yeah, those are fun to, to play with. Just, I think, well, I got a lot of people asking me to like do some consulting work for them and all. I think it's, I found a really good one for about six hundred bucks, and I think it'll pay for itself in that realm. Uh, but it, this is an interesting landscape, and we're supposed to be bringing Jeff out here yeah. um, probably a fall, and it might be a really interesting challenge for him. Because this thought was, I'll just put in a swale here, I'll put a swale here, pond, 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 and, well, that's not going to happen. And no. I want to see him make good on his thing. He, all, You know what he says? The more constraints on a design, the more elegant the eventual design. So I've got a big-ass constraint in the form of ocean bed.
1: Yeah, that's, that is that uh, is challenging. But, okay, so <laughs> I I kind of wonder about, bringing in fill. I mean, like, what... How, like, you said a foot. You, you, you've got, like, subsoil.
0: Your topsoil and subsoil... It's like To be fair, my topsoil, except in some areas where I've got erosion, because well, they had goats here and they overgrazed them. Um, except for where that is, is beautiful. It's beautiful soil with a subsoil of a, a black loamy clay.
1: Okay. How deep?
0: Uh, some places... Four inches, some places a foot, foot and a half. Okay, all right.
1: So, um, I, and, and then once you get below that, then it's like this
0: solid rock. It looks just like concrete. The only way you'll know it's not concrete is when you get it close and see all the little living ocean creatures in it. Okay, all right, all right.
1: Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that if I were on this piece of land, That my thinking would be is that I'm, I'm going to be planting lots of trees and stuff like that, and they need to go deeper than that. And so, um, it's like, okay, how do I, um, uh, take this, uh, uh, subsoil that I have and puff it out to be much thicker? But part of me is going to be thinking like, I need it to be even deeper than that. I mean, I want, I want my trees to be able to go. Um, of uh, you know, a good uh, uh, ten, fifteen feet deep. How can I do that if I've only got a foot or eighteen inches?
0: Yeah, and see what's interesting is there must be <clears throat> fractures and cracks and places for this stuff to go because the whole place is covered in live oaks, pin oaks. I mean, there's a it is a very forested, uh, you know, uh, central Texas style forest, but forested area. I would sacrifice one.
1: To go and see how deep it went and what did it find and what did it oh, do? Oh, the good
0: news is I got oak mold on some of them, so there's plenty of them that could be yanked out because they're coming down with the chainsaw anyway.
1: So I would, yeah, I would, I would want to take one down and I would want to pull out the stomp and I would want to follow the roots and I'd want to see did that tree get down into a crack and like open that up because if it did, then I want to, I want to repeat that a whole lot so that way because I I really don't like to bring um anything onto the land and and so this would be a way of being able to solve the problem without bringing material onto the land yeah <clears throat> but that's just me that's just me
0: so the original question was what about shifting ducks
1: you could i mean my first thought is is like okay i would want you got to have at least four paddocks so that means you have to have at least four ponds and they could be smaller ponds depending on how many ducks you're thinking of having but you're right they're going Okay, it doesn't. So, so you would probably want something. I would guess at least twenty feet across, and and so forest ponds that are pretty small, so that way you can, ha- so the ducks could have access to those, and those will be your four paddocks.
0: Yeah, that that would work. I think the one thing about ducks is they are so much easier on land than than chickens are. They don't they don't scratch, and a lot of the things chickens eat they don't eat. They're they're big on slugs, snails, bugs, insects. Um, they're not like geese that'll really graze the grass heavily either. And again, I just like ducks. I just think they're, uh, they got great personality and, uh, duck eggs are really good eating. And, um, when it comes to eating a roasted chicken or a roasted muscovy duck, mm-hmm. I'll take the duck any day.
1: <laughs> I, am more, more power to you. I, 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 I've had a lot of duck lately. I've been eating a lot of duck and,
0: and it is rather delicious. Really? Where are you getting your duck from? You got a local supplier or?
1: Um, I, we, so here I am in Missoula, Montana. We we have a, a grocery store that's been having duck there lately. And oh, and then plus, on top of that, just like you, I mean, I don't have as many fans as you have, but I do have some fans, and once in a while, they provide me with, with awesome food. I Like I, duck. Like duck. I mean, uh, I'm sure. I, since I get stuff in the mail, and then when I travel, I get stuff, and then I have people... Who are like finding me and like giving me things? Surely you're having the same thing happen to you.
0: Yeah, I have a lot of people giving me my favorite thing, which is homebrew. That's that's the number one thing that seems to show up here is (laughs) homebrew beer. Um, I I know that your your favorite thing in the world is pie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know that. (laughs) Yeah, I do.
0: It's the way you say it, your eyes kind of glass over and you, you kind of go into this transcendental state and it's just like, hi.
1: <laughs> well now, when you and I were in, um, Montana together, it was like, uh, the second day that you were there, I got really sick. And, and then it was, uh, um, I was kind of out of it for the rest of the time that you were there.
0: Yeah, so, you didn't look good.
1: Yeah, and, and it wasn't because of eating pie, it was something else. Um, because emo got the same thing, whatever it was. Mm. Um, and uh, so, but I, I also know that you tend to do this paleo thing, um, and if it weren't for the paleo thing, I was going to send you a huckleberry pie, which may be the best kind of pie in the
0: world. You can send me one. I, the thing is, the whole pie, That's that's. You're right off sending me huckleberries with which to make my own mini pies or something. As a paleo guy, I I just did a video today on a new product that does vacuum sealing of uh, dry goods. I, I pointed out, I don't not eat wheat. I don't not eat bread. I don't not eat potatoes. I just eat them in very small ratios compared to the typical diet. I may get... 10% 10 percent of my caloric intake from a potato or a, uh, a bean or anything that's in the starch family, and it's worked well for me. I've, I've shed close to 90 pounds, and I think the more impressive thing is uh, kind of plateaued at where I'm at, but I've kept it that way for over a year. And there's a lot of people hear about lose 80 pounds, but then they they gain a you know like 95. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I'm pretty happy with it, but uh, I'll take pie on occasion, definitely. And if I get up your way again, and I need to, uh, because I want to see, and I want you to tell people here at the end of the show, what's kind of happened with that whole project that we were part of. Uh, Seth put in all those, like, I think it was about a five-acre area you put those, uh, hugel beds in. Yeah. And you have an update on that, don't you?
1: Right. So then, uh, you were there at the very beginning of May of 2012, and, um, <clears throat> I I popped back and checked on it a couple of times and then I took a video in mid September like September 14th and uh and I've put it up on YouTube and basically when when you were there and and I listened to your podcast about that and I've got you know and I think you had a lot of really important things to say about how you were treated there and stuff but setting that aside for a moment and focusing on what happened and that is that so everybody planted all kinds of things into these beds, and a lot of people were complaining, like, you're planting it too early. You know, it's, We still are going to have several frosts, and, and so a lot of this stuff isn't going to work out. But Seth is saying, have faith in nature. And so we planted it all and then walked away. And then nobody irrigated it. Nobody did anything with it. It produced so much food that the people that lived there couldn't keep up with it. And when I was there, there was still tons of food popping out all over the place, but it was the driest summer on record and tons of food. Nobody irrigated it, and I took the video in on September the 14th, gobs of food. It was green, and there's contrast in the video between, like, okay, look at what we're growing here, which is all green and lush in September, and then look at the hillsides in the backgrounds, and they're all brown and dry and very deserty-looking, But yet here we are in this lush greenness and there's been no irrigation. And now hugel culture, and this is all hugel culture. These are all six foot tall hugel culture beds and hugel culture is famous for not doing that great on the first year. And And it really starts to sing on the third year. So
0: this was a drought year, first year,
1: and it did awesome. It did spectacular.
0: I think part of the reason that place did so good, other than, well, it freaking works, dummy. I mean, that's something that some people just need to get through their head, is that um, if you look at what Holter's done, he's gone in some pretty harsh environments and done this and made it work. And, yeah, it takes two, three years to really start to kick in there. In the place that I saw, the topsoil that covered those things I, it, it's stuff that some people, I think, would literally weep to possess on their own land. True, I mean, it was, and, and I think pond. that may have that 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 valuable topsoil, such rich topsoil, may have helped with the water retention, with the entire symbiotic system. Um And the other side of it is just the. Okay, so you and I have both had the conversation about how some people say, "Well, I overdid the polyculture in the beginning, and you and I laugh and go, "It's not possible." <laughs> yeah, how could you because you <laughs> it didn't work, and don't blame the polyculture. <laughs> I had never seen a polyculture at that level until we were there. I mean, it was you planted and you planted and you plant, and one thing on top of another, and yeah, I had some concerns about the well, just to put it this way, I didn't like the way the workshop was run. Oh, yeah. I didn't like Holzer as a teacher, yeah. but my, my response to that was if I was worth $20 million and I went out and bought a thousand acres in in Texas, the first thing I would do is get in touch with his people, give them a budget and say, do what you will. Right. right. I just went run a workshop with it. I'd run my own workshop after it was done and show people what he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, from a designer, from a, uh, from a, a results oriented, Thing. There is no one that stands toe to toe with him, in, in, in all of the people that I've, I've looked at and followed. Studying with him is indeed hard,
1: and, and it's and it's not for the faint of heart. and And he is going to completely abuse his relationship with you, and and from his perspective, everybody else is a lesser person. And I and I've got my podcast one eleven, which is kind of like about why are all of our big our permaculture bigs why are they such jerks. And 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 my summary off of that podcast, so here's the entire podcast in 30 seconds, is because we make them jerks. I mean, we just have person after person saying, that's stupid. And so then what do you think is going to happen? I mean, they start off being patient and explaining it. And for the first several thousand people, they can do that. But then after a while, you hit 20,000 people or more. And it's kind of like, well, then don't look at it. If you think it's stupid, then piss off.
0: See, the problem is is then they go into overboard where people aren't saying it won't work, it doesn't work, I don't like it. What they're saying is explain it to me. What exactly should I do? And and then they come off with trust nature. Well, I could have got that from your book. Right? I you know, some of these people paid fairly large sums of money to go learn from this guy. And to me, when somebody does that, you shut your hole. And you answer the question. Because I understand what you're saying. Because if I get one more freaking email asking me the same question the last 400 emails you know asked me, I'm going to go nuts. But if somebody pays to come have a workshop with me in a closed experience, even if I've had that question 500 million times, let me answer that for you.
1: Well, I I think that everything you're saying is true. And at the same time, I kind of feel like he's been – a maverick. He's gone out there and he's gotten a mountain of stuff done, and and I think I think in many ways he's a great teacher, but in in many ways he is a horrible teacher. And I think yeah. I think only the the most thick skinned students can learn from him. It's like House. It's like watching that television show House.
0: Oh, I love House. So he he is like House. That's not. No, it's
1: not. <laughs> he will torture everybody. But in the end you've learned, but you've suffer your it's your suffering that is your education. <laughs> but but he's like, Don't plant potatoes
0: <laughs> Yeah, so it's, yeah. It's a, that that pissed me off. It's like I didn't I didn't come there to plant potatoes. Yeah, and, and,
1: and and everything where every point where you were pissed off was I think totally valid. And at the same time he's coming back. He's gonna be back here in uh like a month. Um he's gonna be in California and then uh in Bozeman this time.
0: And so i You have fun with them, Paul. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be right thing. here. <laughs> I'm gonna be right here. Yeah. We actually may be doing our first workshop uh, around the end of March. I have this garden bed system that this people before me put in. It's like eight five foot by twenty five foot raised flat beds with PVC sprinkler irrigation. That's um, I used one of them. I'll probably use two of them because they're there to do some early cuz we can plant right now for winter crops here. Um, but basically the whole system's going to shift north on the property and be done into I see I'm, you're going to hate this. I'm already hating it. I, Go ahead. I don't call what we're doing in America 90% of the time hugo culture anymore.
1: Oh, right. I heard you do a podcast that okay. said woody beds or something like that.
0: Yeah, and that was just like the most – because when I tell somebody it's a woody bed, they go, oh, wood's in there. They get it, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't have to explain it. It's from Austria and you know, all that stuff. But the reason I don't isn't actually because I'm, like, saying, like, it's not the right word. It's because after I saw Seth do his thing, I went, well, this crap's not Huger culture. A culture is a high bed. It's freaking five, six feet tall. It's got this big core, It's on a 70-degree angle. And we have all over America people experimenting with the basic concept, you know, dropping four feet of rotted timber underneath a flat bed, which I did in Arkansas, which did I eliminate irrigation 100%? No, but I eliminated irrigation for 10 out of 12 months. And the only reason I irrigated in those two months was because my cucumbers were bitter. Okay. So it works on these different profiles Lower beds, a meter high instead of two meters high. But to me, when you say that's a hugel culture, it's like calling a chicken a duck. They're both birds. (laughs) Okay. But they're not the same birds. So, if that makes sense. First of all, Sep
1: never uses the word hugel culture. Uh, (laughs) he uses hugel beat and that's, and basically he's just talking about a raised bed. That's all yeah, he's yeah. saying is raised bed, but he puts wood high in bed. his raised bed. Yeah, high it's bed. It's high bed to be accurate, isn't it? I I, I believe so. I think it's actually yeah. I think it's raised bed, but it's like you know you start getting into like this whole other language, and we can go into you know all that. But but the key is is that there were other German people and they did this, but they always put wood in it. And then somebody in America saw it, heard it referred to as hugel culture, and so now what we have is hugel culture means soil on wood. And so now Sep is trying to get used to the fact that these stupid Americans are doing this. But mm-hmm. but basically we've ended up in this place <clears throat> where um hugelkultur means two different things. In Germany it means raised bed or or something like that, but here in America it now means soil on wood. So, Correct. And and so it's like <clears throat> you're right, woody beds, um you you could do that. However, you know, I I do think that we're doing pretty good with the phrase with the word hugelkultur. Um and and you know in the United States, we we refer to Hugo culture. We know that we're talking about when we know when we use the the word. We know that we're talking about. You try long-term.
0: saying huggle culture to an East Texas redneck and see how far you get. Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> here
1: in Missoula that has done huggle culture for twenty years. Only he hates the word huggle culture.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he hates all German words. <laughs> see, I have a completely evolved theory after these uh, several years of working with us now as to why it works. I don't think it's just the spongy core. I believe that when you put wood in the ground and get it wet, and I believe this because it's true, uh, fungi will will inhabit the wood and begin the the Mother Nature process of the fungal breakdown, which you wanted to turn into a song. And when that (laughs) happens, we'll get these microbial fungi in abundance throughout the entire system. And that many of those the, those uh, mycorrhizal fungi will then actually attach to root systems and actually become like a transient adopted root system, and that it's 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 this entire symbiotic relationship. And so when somebody asks me, well, if this high bed with a seventy degree angle works, how come your standard looking raised bed that no one would know is a hoo culture unless you told them with four feet of rotted wood underneath it works too? It's because of this this the entirety of the system, not just a spongy core, because in the end, if you look at the size of that core, it can only hold as much moisture as that core is capable of, in other words, it could be a hundred percent of that space, and you would still run out if that's all there was, and it can't be a hundred percent because there's as the wood breaks down, there's some solid material left sponging right so it's this this totality of the system and changing the biochemistry of the soil as a whole, and then you know the the seventy degree angles, the curves, and all create all these microclimates within it. And some plants do good on this side, and some plants do good on that side. But I think the fungi have a huge role in these systems. So now you're talking about soil tilth or soil structure,
1: and you're yeah. right. Everything you said is correct. And it's like we're going to have uh, soil structure to the tune of six feet deep, as opposed to having soil structure be an inch deep. And, by the way, we're going to till it every year and destroy it every
0: year. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So, so
1: yeah, when soil starts to get age on it, it gets better and better and better with age. And it's like not just the fungi, but the bacteria, all the microorganisms in the soil. Life in the soil. It's Life in the soil is where... Did you know that my, my big website is called
0: richsoil.com? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, you know, that's a good note. We're, we're getting toward the end of an episode here. Um, let's let's tell folks about all of your sites where they can learn more. Read your article, all of that stuff.
1: So the big chicken article is at richsoil.com. And uh, in it, we try to cover some stuff about what you can plant to eliminate chicken feed costs. And it goes into the paddock shift systems and stuff like that. We also have the respectful chicken harvest video, which I think is good. I don't know if, if you've seen that one um i uh another thing is is that i've got a note here about how i 've got a video about um uh uh feeding your chickens maggots and and how uh you can set up a um a, a mag uh, a chicken feeding station for feeding them maggots um and uh but i've i've learned by putting that up there that actually black soldier fly larvae are superior. Um but I haven't posted a video about that yet. And of course, you know, I've got tons of podcasts about raising chickens and, and things of that nature. Um I should mention that I'm gonna be the keynote speaker down at the Southern California Permaculture Convergence um uh, March 9th and 10th. Um and uh and then I'm gonna be teaching a workshop, an Earthworks workshop, I was just mentioning that earlier, uh just before that convergence. Um and it'll be in like the San Diego area. Um, and I think I'm doing some kind of presentations or something in L.A. while I'm down there, too. Um, they were just starting to talk about that recently. Um, b- 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 Steps coming to town. Um, of course, I've got like 230 podcasts, thanks to you, Jack. And you're actually in like two or three of my podcasts. You're my my guy that I'm interviewing
0: yeah yeah I'm there. Yeah. We do this both directions at times yeah you're actually for people that want to get like a big gob of your podcasts all at once without going through and downloading them, you're actually selling them off and block now right
1: yeah i I'll, I put forty together in a chunk and I sell them for like four dollars and fifty cents out at Scubly. um and, uh, and and here's a weird thing. I put one up. I had so many people asking me about politics and I, and you talk about politics a lot in your show, but I'm very apolitical and so i I made a a podcast where I talk about politics and I put it up for 25 bucks with the message that don't download it. Who wants to listen to a guy that doesn't even spend time talking about politics, (laughs) listening to him talking about politics, but already there's been a whole bunch of people that have paid the 25 bucks to hear my crazy philosophies, which basically it's like to me, politics is uh, a circus made dominantly of scary clowns, whose purpose is to try and distract you from what's really going on.
0: Here's the dynamic at play with political spin involved in it with that. I don't know if you'll remember this. Back in the 80s, Eddie Murphy made, it was Richard Pryor made a movie called Brewster's Millions. Right? Remember that? Yes, yes. Right. He had to spend $30 million in 30 days and have nothing to show for it. And one of the ways he blew money was he ran for mayor and he said, don't vote for me. (laughs) And it almost backfired because he almost won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um,
1: <clears throat> so uh, anyway, there you go. So I, I think I plugged all my stuff. I mean, permies.com. Oh, I should say per- that's where the forums are. And and you know what I love more than pie is somebody um, uh, ans- asking a good question or posting a good response at Permies. I really think that that's the place where we do most of the information exchange and and we work and 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 we're very tough there we're 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 very we delete a lot you know we have we have publishing standards and we're it's a heavily moderated forum but uh permaculture is, is permaculture and homesteading very focused
0: so plug, plug all right well, and I'll have links to all of that good stuff in today's show notes so you guys can connect with paul um uh, Paul's a good friend of the show guys he he mentions us a lot if you are a new listener. Haven't heard from him in the past. Haven't heard from him on our, you're on our expert council as well. All right. Uh, so if you have a question for Paul and you'd like Paul to answer it on the survival podcast instead of his podcast, <laughs> do not email me your question. If you email me your question, say question for Paul Wheaton. I'm going to say email Paul. We do the expert council with Colin. So you dial 866 65 think and say, I have a question for Paul Wheaton. It is. And please do me a favor. Ask Paul the question, or ask me the question if it's for me, and then give me the details. I promise you so much that your call will go better, and your odds of getting on the air will go from 1% to about 50% if you do that. And if you call for Paul or expert council members, your odds are actually more like 80% of you follow that, because they try to give those calls priority. As soon as you hang up the phone, email me and say, uh, call for Jack in the subject line and say, I just left a call for... Paul, Wheaton, and Steve Harris, whoever. And that way, I will go dig your call out of the normal queue and put it in a special place for expert council members. And Paul will record his response and tell you what he thinks, even if you don't like it, because that's, well, that's the way we do things at the Survival Podcast. We tell you what we think, and then you have to think for yourself. That's why the number is 866 65 think. Not eight six six sixty five. Do what we say. And uh, Paul, I'd like to thank you for doing that and being on our expert council and answering those questions when they come in.
1: I'm glad to do that. I think the last one was rocket mass heaters.
0: And uh, absolutely, uh,
1: I, I I believe I am. Uh, I heard Ernie say this the other day that I'm one of the top five innovators now in rocket mass heater technology. So, um, and Ernie is the guy. Ernie's the man. So, uh, but but you mentioned send. Send email me questions. Do not email me your questions. <laughs> I, I think if I got any more email, I would die.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm serious, though. On the expert council stuff, guys, I say this once in a while, but if you want to get it answered the best way, 866-65-THINK, leave your question, always make your point or leave your question at the beginning of the call, as in the second you start speaking, your question or your point should come out of your mouth. Details follow after that. I promise you it works. Otherwise, you hang up the phone and call back six times and spend like $4 of my 800 budget money for me. And I don't actually use you. So that's not good. Uh, but, Paul, thanks again for being on the air with us today. Thanks for having me, Jack. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Paul Wheaton, helping you figure out how to leave that be- live that better life if times get tough or even if they. These days, you
1: know it's on our Sometimes we forget.
0: Everybody up there.